This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. You know, I'd come home late at night usually from work and uh, turn on the black light, which is permanently installed, and watch what came in. You are listening to Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. We've got one of your co-hosts on this end of the Skype, Billy Brown, and Tony Crosdale. I was going to say, this is uh, the first time we're recording remotely, um, just the two of us. So, this is an experiment, which we have to thank our Patreon supporters for, helped us purchase the equipment to do such a thing. They did, and um, I am not in the studio, but Tony is, and routing a Skype call through the recorder and using headphones and a microphone, and so, so he should probably sound better than I do. Before we get too far... I've got another Patreon donor to thank, our Patreon supporter to thank, Anella Ross. Um, just became a Patreon supporter, and uh, we want to thank Anella and all our previous Patreon supporters for helping us do things like buy equipment. Um, and even though we've got the equipment bought, uh, we have more equipment we want. Uh, no, for real. I think we want to get some some mics that make sense for recording out in the field. And then there's also just like the ongoing costs of the podcast, which are things like uh, web hosting, that sort of thing, or hosting the the audio files for how you set up podcasting. In any case, um, much appreciated, uh, and uh, we invite any listener who's so moved to to chip in some money for the podcast on Patreon. Um, keep in mind that this is work that this is stuff that Tony and I do in our spare time, labor of love kind of thing. Definitely has been a sink of resources more than a source of resources for us. Uh, so we're always happy to have someone chip into that. That's a, it's a really it's a, it's a wonderful thing. When Trump kills your job, we can um, we'll start doing this full time for a living. <laughs> Tony's alluding to the fact that I am a federal employee. I won't go into what I do exactly because it's not at all connected to the podcast. But in a sense, Trump is killing my job. It's just going to take a little bit long, take a little while. <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, but I'll your job is related to the podcast because that's how we know each other more or less. It is one of the ways we know each other. That's true. When you were um, your boss. When I was your kind of your boss. The other thing I want to mention is that we got a uh, a lovely note from someone who goes as Sarah, S-E-R-R-A, from Dunedin, New Zealand, um, where they work as a parks officer. Report that I only that I randomly found your podcast, and I love it. I'm a middle-aged punk. Sounds familiar. Yes. Went to university to do science in my 30s and worked as a field botanist. I'm currently working for a city council in Dunedin, New Zealand as a parks officer. Lots of urban ecology. No bears or snakes. Way too many outside cats. Anyway, keep doing what you're doing. Love it from 46 degrees south. Best wishes. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, New Zealand is somewhere I really want to visit. Um, sooner than later, so maybe we can link up. Then we'll say hi to anybody out there, wherever you are on the planet, because we got listeners all over it. Um, if you want to send us a note, you can do that at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Um, you can drop something on Facebook. 
you can tweet at us at our wildlifecast and you and, and while you're rating us highly on your podcast listening app of choice, um, you're also welcome to leave a comment. I would like to give a shout out to um, I Know Dino podcast. Um, you know, if we're going to like ask people to um, like our podcast and promote it, uh, I would like to promote I Know Dino podcast this week because. Tell I, me about it. It's a dinosaur podcast. It's just this these two people that discuss. Um, I'm, they do some interviews occasionally. Um, you know me, I, I tend to really like conversational podcasts. So they're kind of like um, in the Stuff You Should Know vein where like they they discuss a topic. I mean, it's not just one topic. They kind of like read news, like paleontology news, and there's like a new species of dinosaur like each month. So they, they focus on, you know, uh, dinosaur-focused paleontology. And it's just a delightful podcast, you know. I, I, it's, um, you know, I love hearing other science I mean, I get kind of. I mean, I consider dinosaurs wildlife. They were wildlife, right? And there's not much wildlife content out there, so I really appreciate um, when I get to listen to a new wildlife podcast. There's also the was it? Um, there's a meme Facebook meme group of like field biologist memes that I find really funny, and they I'm looking it up, doing a thing. I'm talking slowly as I scroll through my phone, but they have a new podcast, and it's very short episodes, and that's. Um, Wild Green Streams for Ecological Fiends. So, so yeah, one more time. Wild Green Street. Wild Green Streams for Ecological Fiends. Without too much further ado, let's get to the the topic of the episode today. Uh, and I'm going to admit this is not something that like you or I like worked out ahead of time as like, hey, you know what we should do? This is what we should do. And then we planned it. What happened is I'm writing an article for Grid. I was recording people and experiences uh, just as my form of, of recording it all so I can write down the notes more thoroughly after I'm done with the interview. Um, and I'm like, you know, I got some good content for an episode. We got an interview with a little bit of content from talking with Stephen Mason. Steve is a, is a PhD candidate uh, at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, of Drexel University, studying uh, basically... Uh, looking into fire ecology and, and insect responses to fire in the Pine Barrens. So he's somebody who uh, samples moths and other insects using light traps like for, for official research, right? And then I recorded also uh, a guy named Ken Frank, one of our favorite people, who wrote the classic The Ecology of Center City, Philadelphia. And Ken is what I like to think of, we like to think of kind of as a bug guy, he's very much also a plant guy, extraordinaire. Um, but Ken, he's the kind of guy who, although he lives in Fittler Square, which is an extremely urban neighborhood in Center City, Philadelphia. And people, it's famous. It's a very good, very popular, very well-respected movie. Is centered in Fittler Square. Can you name it, Billy? We're talking about The Sixth Sense, The Sixth Tony? Sense, yes. Indeed. So this is a it's kind of narrow streets, brick houses, um, good tree cover. I uh, live in like, one and married one. What? Brick house. <laughs> I think we both did, actually. <laughs> True. I think that's fair to say. Um, and uh, in any case, what, what, you know, Ken's a guy who, for decades, has had like a, a setup in his backyard so that whenever he feels like at night, he just you know puts up a sheet and switches on the light. And like, and can start to see who what flies in. Um, and Ken's got a great story about, about how he sort of like 
indirectly reconfirm the existence of freshwater sponges in the Schuylkill River after decades of no one seeing them by a kind of a, a obligate sponge feeding fly, at least as a larvae, as, at least as larvae, um, that appeared drawn in by his black light. So Ken's a serious amateur light trapper, I guess, for bugs. And so Ken and I sort of set up in this community garden space I've got and just checked out what flew in. Um, and we had a great time. And it got me thinking that, like, this is something that if you're someone who lives anywhere where at night when you turn on your porch light and you see bugs flying around your porch light, um, you can you can do this too. Um, you can take a sheet. You can take, you know, Ken's pretty serious about using black lights. But I like to say, like, if your porch light, which is just incandescent, is pulling in bugs, then you have bugs that are attracted to that kind of light. But, yeah, get a black light if you can. Um, but basically a sheet, a cheap black light you can, like, flashlight, you, like the one I got on eBay, um, and just, like, prop it up so it points at the sheet and just, like, chill and watch what flies in. But, like, when you've done this at, at like, I guess we're at Cops Creek and the Wissahickon, like, talk, talk of, like, what's that like when you're doing that, like, with the public? Oh, it's great. Um, I definitely done it twice. I had the same person come out twice, Chris Safa, who we should probably have on at some point. She's this is an incredible person and actually lives in Roxborough. And she um, does moth nights um, regularly for friends that was a Hicken and other folks around this part of the city, um, Schuylkill Center and and whatnot. And she, um, she came to my entomology class when I taught it at Ambler, Temple Ambler, and Ambler's right outside the city here, and then came to, did it at Cobbs Creek, and so you, you know, you, you put up a, a sheet with a black light, you also, there's a, some sort of other iodine lamp, sodium lamp, there's some other super bright light you also use, which is expensive, and then yeah, you also yeah. use, um, like, fermenting bananas and beer, and kind of smear oh, yeah. paste around that kind of paste around, and it just draws um, like one mimics a pheromone that um, brings um, I think that mimics a pheromone that brings uh, moss in, and then you know they also want sugar, and they'll come to that, and then the lights bring in, and it brings in a whole variety of things, and um, yeah, it, it's great, you know, and you you, know, you get to capture. The, the moss, and then you can identify them, and, you know, I mean, you always see a bunch of things you've probably not seen before, if you haven't, if unless you're an entomologist and do this regularly, like, it's going to be pretty new to you, and you get to really get intimate with the attacks of that, you know, it, you know, you see them when you're, like, camping in your, you know, flitting around the, the outhouse or the, you know, the shower block or something, um, you know, you see moss here or there, like, but to see them... In a, in a setting where you can go to reference material, you can you can put them in containers and, and look at them and and, and uh, you know and some people collect them and pin them you know if you if that's your thing. So it's 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 great to actually you know go through methodically the tax you know the different ones and, and, and you know use taxonomic keys to figure out what, what's what. And on the dramatic end of the spectrum, we got one of those really big um, green katydids. Uh, so it's I'm not even exaggerating not whatsoever i'm literally just talking about this reminded me that i saw one and i was actually <laughs> gonna put it on naturalist right now but yeah i saw <laughs> and and it made me think about how 
I feel like I would see those Katie dids like more often growing up than I do now. I mean, as an anecdote, you know, but you know, and and what I saw, but I'll say the Katie did was dramatic. Um, but then the thing that surprised me the most uh, was that we got a bunch of caddisflies. Real quick, Tony, what's a caddisfly? Caddisfly is a invertebrate that the adults are sort of moth-like. They kind of have like more of a snout, but they're most well known for their larval stage. Uh, and one particular group of them, um, they kind of look like a beetle larva. Um, and the abdomen, I guess thorax and abdomen, or maybe just the abdomen, they, they encase in um, little pebbles, or and they cement together and kind of form this tube. And sometimes it's also like a like rings of like parallel fibers of plant material they also do that as well um people have actually like given them like colored rocks and jewels and they made little um like jewel encrusted <laughs> cases like little arts of, so they're they're very you know they're known for that and but there's also ones that don't have the cases as well uh and but, when i do sampling i do macrovertebral sampling you know a dozen times a year often you know like depending on what classes come through what facility i'm at and um you know, I see mostly the net spinning or like the free roaming kind. I don't really often see the cases, but I, I do see those when I've worked in the Arctic and whatnot. And the the part that I and I see them or I feel them a lot, like when I'm, um, I was thinking about this because I'm itching to go jump in the Delaware River and snorkel for turtles. Um, but you find when you're grabbing rocks or touching rocks at the bottom of the the rocky section of the Delaware River, so upstream from Trenton. It feels like you're you're feeling like some kind of crust of little ridges under rocks, and so what you're actually touching are the some of the the, the cases of the kinds of caddisflies that kind of cement um, sand and stuff to form their tubes under rocks. Um, but the part that interested me, Tony, is that I live maybe as far from water as one can live in West Philly. Like I live about a mile and a half from the bend of the Schuylkill, that Schuylkill River that comes up around, let's say, like the woodlands, right? That's an old historic cemetery. And then further from, you know, from there. The part that amazed me is that we're getting caddisflies like well over a mile from like the nearest body of water. And the larvae are aquatic. But we were getting a lot of them. It wasn't like just one flew in. It was, it wasn't like hundreds, but like, you know, they were by numbers up there is one of the more common critters on the, the sheet. Um, and it's just something, this is why you do this kind of thing. It's something I just never would have thunk of, you know, like that we, that, that the, the swifts flying above my house are up there picking off, uh, essentially aquatic insects. Um, even though we're not, as I think of it near water. It makes you sad to think in like literally like you should be right next to a Creek. You know, you should be right next to Mill Creek. Um, well, when yeah. it's underground, so think about how many more there would have been. But even so, it's pretty cool. Tony's so, referencing that like Philadelphia has taken a lot over the years of development, took a lot of creeks and basically turned them into storm sewers, um, including the Mill Creek, which runs through West Philly. But you're right; I should be a few blocks off of Mill Creek, but I'm a few blocks off of like a 15 foot culvert underground. That carries Mill Creek. We should do this at my house because I'm um, uh, 50 feet from a creek. That I'm sure. You're also has... just backing up on a park. I yeah. mean, like, 
I think you'd have a lot of cool stuff out there. And this is the way I think and you think, Tony, and hopefully our listeners think, is like this is the kind of thing you could do at a party. <laughs> like, yeah. You could have some people over the back end of your back, you know, of your backyard. You got the light set up. People can pop out, see what's coming to light. Steven with a PhD, Mason Jr. I'm a PhD student um, at Drexel studying fire effects on insect communities. I'm a graduate research associate at the entomology department at the Academy of Natural Sciences. You know, I study insects and I study how ecosystems function. So that's an ecologist and an entomologist. With climate change, wildfires are increasing in frequency and intensity globally. And because of that, it affects ecosystems uh, positively and negatively. It depends how you look at it. There's winners and losers to every disturbance. Um, and one of the ways to combat wildfires, ironically, is to set prescribed fires. So you'll have wildland firefighters that purposely set lower intensity fires in the non-growing season, which is like the winter and fall and spring. I'm basically looking at um, how insects respond to these prescribed fires in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. Um, the New Jersey Pine Barrens is part of the 36th global biodiversity hotspot, um, which is the North Atlantic coastal plain. I'm looking at the winners and losers basically of these fires. So when a fire comes through, um, which insects just decline dramatically and which insects actually increase um, after a fire, which to a lot of people in my experience are like, wait, what? You know, things come back immediately after a fire. And a lot of plants and animals do because you are reducing competition. You are opening the canopy for more sunlight. Um, you have a lot of dead wood and there's a lot of insects specifically that need dead wood to survive and lay their eggs and stuff like that. Um, and how I sample those insects, um, I did three collecting methods. One of them is a pitfall trap. You basically put a cup in the ground, um, and insects will be crawling around and just fall into the cup. And then you eventually take the cup, combine the samples together, and then sort through them. So pitfall traps are designed to um, focus on ground-dwelling species specifically. Uh, the other trap is called a malaise trap. It's designed to catch flying insects, um, and malaise traps are basically, it's almost like a tent-like structure. An insect will be flying around. It'll hit the tent-like structure, and then when they feel uh, disturbed, they'll actually fly up towards the sun, but the, but the malaise trap will kind of funnel them into a corner. Then they'll fall into a sample jar of ethanol. Um, and then the last, yeah, it, it, it yeah. Um, so we, we say they, they died drunk. Um, <laughs> um, so, and then the third trap, um, I actually use bucket light traps, which are different than what you mentioned, putting just a sheet up with a light. So bucket light traps are designed to actually collect the insects um, for research. So it's basically a light on top of a bucket. The insects, of course, are attracted to the light um, in the bucket. Then there'll be a killing agent. Um, in the bucket, so when the insects are attracted to light above the bucket, um, the killing agent will work, then they'll fall into the bucket, and then the following day, I'll actually collect those uh, specimens. Um, you end up waiting up all night with the bucket, or you sort of turn it on and then come back in the morning? No, so it, it's battery-operated, um, and there's, I forget what the exact thing you would call it, but on the light trap, 
Um, once the sun goes down and nighttime comes, it automatically turns on. I know a lot of nightlights okay. have that same mechanism. Yep. Um, and then the battery will just last all night. And oftentimes when I come back early morning the following day, the light will still be on or um, it'll automatically turn off because the sun came back up. Gosh. So, and that's different than like a light sheet because a light sheet is, you know, you're shining a light and there's different types of light bulbs with different frequencies on the light sheet and things come to the sheet, but you're just observing. I mean, entomologists do collect, but the bucket light trap that I use for my research, it just collects everything that's attracted to the light. Okay. So it's unbiased in that way. What insects are attracted to light? Good question. Mostly moths. And other nocturnal critters, I would say, one of the big questions in science is why are actually insects attracted to light at night? That would be my next question, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, I mean, there's a lot of hypotheses for that, but I think the leading hypothesis currently is that they think that it's moonlight. Um, and then insects are actually known to look for their mates using the moon and moonlight to navigate to find their mates. Kind of a funny story. I, I do. Uh, um, I work for National Audubon every year, and I do this kind of light demonstration for families and kids. And I all, often ask, like, why are insects attracted to light, just to see what their answers are. And then one of the kids was like, "Oh, because they're afraid of the dark." And I I love that answer. So. <laughs> what would you recommend if someone just wanted to start doing this on their own? A lot of things are coming to my mind, but the first thing is see what comes to your porch light first to see if you see anything interesting. Um, and if it's, and if you find yourself constantly going back to the porch light to see if there's anything new there, um, I would definitely recommend going to a moth event or like you said, doing it on their own. Um, and it's as simple as having a rope and tying it between two trees and putting an old sheet over the rope and just putting a light out you know, to reflect off the sheet. There are different things you could... about using, like, different kinds of light, like like white light versus, like, UV light or black light? Right. So any light will work. Um, there is some studies that show that different light frequencies attract different things. Um, but arguably kind of the best light that you could use is a mercury vapor light uh, lamp um, because it has all the wavelengths or most of the wavelengths um, on the light frequencies that uh, nocturnal insects could actually see. Um, having said that, you don't want to look directly into a mercury vapor lamp because it will it's like looking into the sun. Um, but you could say that about any light, I guess. So, But a mercury vapor light would be the best. Um, you could purchase uh, light trapping kind of a, equipment, light sheet equipment online. Um, but it, it's easiest how everyone starts, how even the professionals do it. You just put a rope out, put the sheet over the rope, and just find a light. Um, okay. And you'll get a lot of stuff. And then you kind of adjust as you go. Like, everyone has their own unique thing. People use clothespins to put on the rope. Other people put rocks down to hold down the sheet. You know, for me, I, I have, like, a $20 contraption where you just put a bunch of poles through a reflective sheet, and it'll just you stick the poles into the ground, and it stands itself up. Um, and something interesting too is that throughout the night when you're light trapping, you get different species of insects that come out at different times, which is kind of cool. Uh, so meaning at 11 p.m., you might see 20 of the same moth, 
but then, tw you know, 12 a.m., you won't see that moth anymore, and then comes a another influx of a different species of moth. Ah, um, uh, okay. So it's worth doing yeah, it, yeah. like, not just for 20 minutes, but for, for different periods or sustained periods into the night. If you want to see different stuff, and, you know, a lot of, as you mentioned, iNaturalist, you could take photos of stuff, put it online, and see the diversity in your backyard. As you probably know, insects are by far the most biodiverse organism in the world. Um, yeah. So th there's a lot to see. You know, even if it's your own backyard, in the city, or if it's in the woods, or I'm in a park, there's there's always a lot to see. Um, normally, if you do do it on your own, you don't want to do it the same time there's a full moon out because you're competing with the moon, essentially. And if you do it in your backyard, try to turn off all the lights in your house as well because that's competition also. Okay, so make it as dark as possible. Yes, definitely. One thing about light trapping is oftentimes you'll get diurnal things that come to the light, like butterflies, for example, or dragonflies. And the reason for that yeah. is it's because they actually think, like, it's daytime now. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been using something like a sheet and a light to sample or study bugs in in Philadelphia? Well, I probably started close to when we moved in, maybe 40 years ago. But I did it most intensely during the very busy years of my medical practice as a way of unwinding at the end of a the day. There you go. Yeah. I would... Some people go fishing and... <laughs> you know, I'd come home late at night, usually, from work, and uh, turn on the black light, which is permanently installed, and watch what came in, and very often nothing, but over the years, a wide variety of very surprising insects came to this light, and it was just a source of pleasure to see, well, what's going to happen tonight? Yeah. You know, well, I get something I haven't seen before. Yeah. Um, and describe your setup real quick. Um, well, the setup we have, I have now is a sheet that's mounted to the back wall of the house. And in the past, I used a trouble light that just dangled from an overhang and had a fluorescent 15-watt blacklight tube screwed into the trouble light. Now I have an actual lamp mounted to the wall okay. that illuminates the sheet. And what are some of the surprising things you found over the years? Well, the most surprising thing was a neuropter. And I guess that's a... It's related to Dobson flies, but it... Climacea, I'm trying to remember the common name. It it's a, it feeds on freshwater sponges. That's what I was going to ask you about. Okay. Yeah. Because you wrote about this in your book, Ecology that, is Inner City that's Philadelphia. That's right. It yeah. feeds on freshwater sponges. It's called a spongilla fly. And that was just a surprise. And I couldn't identify it. I uploaded images to Bug Guide. And that's how I thought, oh, wow. So these things feed in the Schuylkill River um, on freshwater sponges, and we had two species of these. 
And your house, just to clarify, is in the Fittler Square neighborhood, which yeah. is uh, just a few blocks, really, from the Schuylkill River. That's right. Yeah. Then we have most of what I what flies in are really from the Schuylkill River. We have caddisflies, yeah. vast numbers of caddisflies, but the most numerically the most abundant are non-biting midges. They uh, look kind of like mosquitoes. That's right. But as you said, are not biting. Yeah. They look like mosquitoes, sometimes hundreds of them. So these are the uh, things that when you see swallows flying over the river... That's probably what they're eating. Picking bugs out of the air, it's the midges, yeah. And that's what the spiders at the lights... Um, the along, bridge spiders. Yeah, the bridge spiders, that's yeah. what they, they like to eat. But then we get some moths, and they're usually moths whose larvae feed on the local flora. Okay. Some are migrants. Probably the most common were the Ilanthus webworm moth, because a neighbor has a huge Ilanthus tree uh, that she prides. And there's no shortage of Ilanthus in the city for webworm moths. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But they're a smart-looking uh, moth. I mean, they're a day-flying moth, right? I, think I, I see them visiting flowers in the daytime. That's right. So they are a day fly moth, which is interesting that they would fly at night to a black light. That is, yeah, good point. Uh, so they they may be. Must do both. They may do, do they may do both. That's right. Um, but they sort of fold their wings in. Um, I want to call it lengthwise in a sense. They don't look like like when I think of a moth, I think of something holding its wings out to the sides a bit, like big, wide wings. Alanthus webworm moth, you might mistake it for some kind of beetle or something initially. That's right. It's um, And it's got sort of polka dots down its its back. Looks like it's wearing a really like smart-looking raincoat from the 60s. Right. <laughs> right. Presumably, it's, it's uh, unpalatable to predators. And what makes me think that that's the case is you can... You can go right up and look at it. It won't fly away. It's as if it, <laughs> it knows that... It's not scared of much. Yeah. yeah. But, hey, let's go back to the sponge fly example. Because it was an interest... It was a... In your book, you wrote it up with part of the bigger story of um, freshwater sponges in the Schuylkill. That's right. Because I think it had been a long time since anyone had directly observed or really seen freshwater sponges in the Schuylkill. Some of the pioneering work on freshwater sponges were, was done at the turn of the last century, you know, the end of the 1800s. And many of them were identified on the dam of the Fairmont Dam. Like growing on the, the rocks? Dam itself. Stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and in the pool that was used for, to pump water up to where the art museum is, it used to be a reservoir. Yep, yep. Um, they were there. You know, there was a, a gasification plant just below the Fairmont Dam. So I think these freshwater sponges must have been just north of the coal gasification plant because okay. I can't imagine they'd be able to survive yeah. uh, the pollution from, from that. Yeah. yeah. I, I like to think that the fact that these spongilla flies are flying to my light is a sign that the river is in good shape. Yeah, they have something to eat. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Freshwater sponges, they can't have too much silt because they're filter feeders. Okay. So if there's too much suspended particular matter in the water, I think it clogs up their filters. Okay. So I, I, I see that as a as a really hopeful sign that the river is, is doing well. Okay. So to describe for people who can't see this, this is a, a community garden space that I do a lot of gardening in near my house in West Philly. And it is where one half of a twin used to be. Um, and then there's a lot of sort of ground level to hip height um, native plants and stuff that I've been planting. And we got the light set up at the edge of where there's some, some garden raised beds and sort of behind the light and the sheet. And then in front of the light and the sheet, some vegetation, the path going lengthwise through the, the garden. And then what I think of as a, almost a grove now of Jerusalem artichoke. It's a vegetable, but it's also a, a sunflower that gets to be, gosh, I don't know, like 12, 13 feet tall, really tall. And so it's like a thicket to one side. And so hopefully when we set it up, Ken was talking about it and thinking that the flying insect, the night the nocturnal flying insects coming out of the vegetation, this is sort of an open patch in the middle. So I guess if we're trying to think like a moth, that would attract its attention. Yeah. Look, there's a... A scarab beetle, uh, I'm not sure what that is, I'd have to, there's a lot of stuff here. What are those, a few of those guys? Oh, this looks like an assassin bug. Oh, neat. Uh, a little assassin bug, there's a lot. Okay, here, this, this is a caddisfly, I think. Oh, so we're getting caddisflies here? I believe that's a caddisfly or a moth. Sometimes it's hard to tell. That so what we're looking at it's a small. It's a small fly. It's definitely an insect with wings, but it's about half an inch long, charcoal gray looking with thin antenna, um, and that's about as all. I mean, when you say nondescript, this is what you're thinking of. <laughs> Not much <laughs> else going on with its appearance. Um, and then that looks like some kind of wasp. But this thing. Oh. This thing. That's that's a assa little assassin bug. Neat. So it's a predatory true bug, right? Yeah. It's got raptorial front legs. If you look close, you can see them. So that's something to hold on to other bugs. That yeah, they catches. grab, they seize other bugs. So when we say bug, we're actually referring to an order of insects. Not. It's confusing because you can use the term bug as like a generic term for these insects, but also it's, it is also a specific order of insects that use sort of sucking mouth parts to eat. Yeah, I don't know if that's a cat. That that's probably a moth. But sometimes these assassin bugs will actually prey on things that are attracted to the light. Oh dear. Um, that's another one. And that was like a that looks like a wasp. Yes. Mm -hmm. Some little tiny wasp, again about a quarter inch long with Very, clear wings. Ooh. Look at that, a cricket. Oh, we have a cricket? Yeah. I mean, if you started adding up the number of orders of insects already... What is this fellow? This is about an eighth of an inch or quarter inch oval yellow. What is that? I think that's a moth. A very small moth? Yeah. Okay. I think this is something else to think about. We think of moths as being 
I think default like relatively, I don't know, like an inch or so plus, when there's a whole lot of really tiny moths out there. But you know, these things are, you might say they're patrolling your garden. Well, I guess yeah. they are. I mean, yeah, um, they, they're looking for other bugs to grab onto mm -hmm. and, and suck the juices out of. And they're, they're one of the more common big insects right now. And I, of course I've never, I, I have some of those. What's this beetle? It's not it's a, a scarab. It's a scarab. So that's a scarab. Is that a family of beetles? Scar yes. Uh, okay. And so, so these are like so scarabs look like sort of your most if you if you just someone just said beetle to you you probably think of a scarab. Um, so very round. This one's got a kind of a coppery color with yeah, a little bit there of green highlights. A whole lot of beetles that look just like that. <laughs> uh, but it's the Egyptians, you know, had worshipped scarabs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Japanese beetles are scarabs. June beetles, those iridescent, are scarabs. Yeah, yeah. Neat. And who's... These are... That's another one of those, those uh, oh. pale oval ones. And that's a leafhopper right there? I think it might be a tiny... tiny green. So this is really... This is great. And this is only 9 o'clock. It's barely just getting dark right now. I mean, like, it's, well, it's getting dark, but you can still, you know, with sunset was, I think, 8.20 or so tonight. You so, know, you should, for the record, describe precisely what you're using. I am using, oh, man, I wish I had the name of this. There's light. a name on it. Oh, the, it's, it's got our, our found, oh, there it is, a UV inspect flashlight. I got it on eBay. It's one of the things that the people sell to like inspect for mouse urine <laughs> cat urine cat urine exactly um click beetle i think i might have paid 15 bucks for it and it'll click a narrow black beetle it's a click beetle just landed and flew away i mean if you were i would say we have if you were to just eyeball it right now 30 insects yeah on the sheet oh yeah and then in terms of orders of insects, we've got beetles, wasps, bugs, caddisflies, crickets, they're down there. That's right. So five orders at least. Oh, leafhoppers are the same order as assassin bugs, I guess. Um, what is that? It's like a little, we're looking at its shadow too. It's just, you know, I have a... I can't tell. Some little guys. So notes to everybody else and to self for later, bring a magnifying glass. <laughs> oh, I have one. Oh, you have one? Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Let me. I, I'm never without a loop. Well, between the bugs and Here, the plants I'll that you love. I'll hold the light and you... Do you... That uh, looks like a tiny wasp. A wasp, interesting. Or a fly. Maybe it's a fly. Oh, here's a... Here's a it looks like an ichneumon wasp. Oh, neat. That's a parasitic wasp, or a braconid. Long antennae. Yeah, neat. So those are little wasps that um, who basically lay their eggs. One way or another, the eggs get inside another insect, and then the larvae eat them out from the inside. Mm -hmm. um, which is it's really gruesome, but you look at it, it's like maybe the most common way that insects die. Oh, look at that leaf hopper. That is a larger, like lime green leaf hopper. Really neat. 
This is this is really very gratifying, isn't it? Yeah. And so this is a spot that now you're looking through a 10 power loop. Right yeah, now. it's a pretty moth. It's I'll say this for a lot of moths is that they reward magnification. <laughs> the little guys, you look at them and all of a sudden you see a whole lot more detail. It's a much richer pattern than you just look at it with the naked eye. And again, I like to point out, whenever I talk about what's happening on my block, my block is not at all distinctive in Philadelphia. It's a row houses, small apartment blocks, um, which really a whole lot of your densely built cities in North America will look like this, especially East and Midwest. Um, so you too can find a dark corner with some vegetation. Now for your listeners, just we might be, we might say, looking at this, would you say 50? Um, How many would you say? Yeah. I think 50 to 60 is fair. Yeah. Okay. Of those, how many are mosquitoes? <laughs> Zero. 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 Isn't that, isn't that, yeah. We're seeing a whole lot of other bugs that aren't mosquitoes. Exactly. That are what's mostly get, that, that here tonight is entirely getting attracted by the lights as opposed to the mosquitoes, which are still somewhat attracted to Ken's flesh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we know they're out here. <laughs> uh, I, I see one buzzing around you, um, but they're not landing on the, the sheet. You know, I've noticed that usually when I do, let's, let's see if that... The spider is dropping down the sheet. If it, it would be very interesting if we actually saw it predating, because what so one thing that's interested me about black lights is that is that moths when they're flying to these lights and beetles they're com totally confused their biological clocks are reset yeah their their navigational systems are all screwed up um, their their biological habits are all wrong. Can you but, put it back on that one? But predators seem to be able to operate. Now it's really getting crazy here. Yeah. But what I do at home is I photograph them with this. And then in the leisure of the next day, I blow them up and then I can identify them. And I'll say that these days there's a lot of other resources. If you are not as skilled as Ken at identifying insects, um, there are Facebook groups to help identify insects. There is iNaturalist, which is a big help. Um, so there are ways, even if you don't know much about bugs, uh, you can take pictures of what you're looking at and, and there are ways to get them identified and then learn more about what is it that's living around you. But again, what I want to try to encourage folks to do is make sure you have a magnifying glass or a loop um, and take a close look at the little itty bitty specks because I think everybody just thinks gnat or you think like midge or something like that and we've got tiny wasps we have tiny leafhoppers uh, things that once you look up in the magnifying glass are, have, have a lot of amazing detail and the moths like that if you look at it it's yep. got under magnification it has real design oh really rich pattern to it rich patterns yeah 
So now we have a crane fly, which looks like a giant mosquito. Exactly. But it isn't. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and you'll notice there are no mouth parts that, that stick out. Uh, crane flies, some of them live in the soil, and some of them are aquatic. But it's the biggest insect by, if you were to measure it from, you know, that we see on the sheet right now. Yeah. Its similar. body isn't that big, but legs spread out quite a bit. These long, delicate legs, like a crane, hence crane fly. And, and this, by the way, is one of the few members of the order Diptera that we see. Oh, in other words, lacewing. Flies. Oh, a lacewing, neat. Neuroptera, that's another order. And we have. the lacewings are... Predatory. Yep. Their larvae are predatory. So Ken, off, Ken, off mic, Ken and I were talking about our complicated feelings about the term beneficial insect. Um, but putting those aside, this is commonly discussed as a beneficial group of insects because they're predatory eat aphids and things like that. Um, but they're kind of beautiful lime green, like lace-like wings, which is how you get the name lacewing. And they, their eggs are on stalks. They're fascinating. There's a lot of stuff here. It's a very busy sheep. So, I think that's a caddisfly. I think that is. Where are they coming from? Um, they fly longer distances than I give them credit for? Are there terrestrial caddisfly yeah. larvae? Yeah, that that has this little bump. Um, no, they're, but they might they might come from the river. We're like two miles from the river. Well, you're, you're, your point is well taken. Cobbs Creek? Two, no, no, two miles in that direction. It's true. We don't see midges here either, the way we do, you know. In center. it's interesting that Center City and here is different. You know, completely different. Yeah, we're all in the city, but you can see a shift in insect fauna. That's right. Yep. All right, so we're taking our last crack at the <laughs> at the sheet, um, and we're looking at a. How big is that, like three inches? Maybe more like two inches. Two inches, okay. A two inch katydid, uh, <coughs> you know, bright green, impressive, beautiful bug. Long antennae. It will hop, oh, fly. Oh, and fly. Uh, sorry about that. That's okay. And that is another, wait, what kind of beetle is that? That's a new beetle heard from. That looks like a, uh, a European scarab, it's called, or ah. an Asian. It's, it's related to the Japanese beetle. Okay. I would call this very productive. And you were just saying, Ken, that, that we've been here about an hour. I'm going to turn in because I'm just on, huh. on, on baby sleep sure. time. But Ken was pointing out that when you do a proper moth night, um, you don't just stay out for an hour. Right. Right. Because these moths have have uh, flight, flight periods that go at different times during the night. And some of them may be early, but some of them might not be flying until late. Right. Uh, so you could come back from the bars at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, you could fire up the light on the sheet in your backyard and you might see totally different stuff than we're seeing right now um, soon after sunset. What I find very gratifying is that this is from a handheld flashlight. Yeah. This you is not a, fancy equipment. <laughs> <clears throat> you didn't need to have a car battery hooked up. Um, yeah, this is a 
a cheap uh, LED um, blacklight flashlight that I got on eBay set up on a cardboard box pointed at a spare sheet strung over a trash picked <coughs> clothing rack. <laughs> Again, not fancy. I got a bigger moth. Oh, where are you going? Come back. Click beetle? Yeah. Okay. And you, you know what, when you hold a click beetle, what it does? It clicks? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you got, it's probably a good defense. Well, I, I appreciate your inviting me out here. And well, thanks for being the yeah. expert. Um, hope you liked the recording of my moth night experience with Ken Frank, as well as a conversation with researcher Stephen Mason. If you do like this podcast, and we hope you did, uh, please rate us highly on your podcast listening app of choice and tell all your friends about it. Please do send us a note about ideas you'd like us to talk about or things you might want to record, then we can include the podcast. Um, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com, hit us up on Facebook, tweet at us at Herb Wildlife Cast. Be in touch. Lovely. <laughs>